Thank you for choosing to listen to the Emmaus Radio Ministry Podcast. Each of these messages were given by various faculty, staff, and friends of Emmaus Bible College. To view each series as a whole or for more information about similar Emmaus ministries, please visit concerninghim.com. Jonah chapter 2, and today we're looking at verse 10. We're concluding uh, Jonah chapter 2 and uh, wrapping it up, looking at some application for the chapter as well. I'll just read Jonah 2, 10 quickly. The Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. We've seen already in the book of Jonah, Jonah running away from the presence of the Lord, God pursuing after Jonah, calling him back. Jonah's thrown by the sailors into the Mediterranean Sea. God, rather than allowing Jonah to die, sends the giant fish to swallow him. And then we are given in chapter 2 Jonah's prayer to the Lord. And we've seen a couple major themes in this prayer. Just to review quickly, we've seen Jonah's expression of his emotions and his feelings while he's in the belly of the fish. He talks about sinking down into the depths, about uh, feeling like seaweed was wrapped around his head and the great deep engulfing him, even that he's descending into Sheol, to the netherworld. And uh, while down there, he looks toward and remembers uh, the Lord in his holy temple. So we see Jonah uh, expressing that he's feeling like he's at the bottom, but even while he's at the bottom, he looks back up to the top and asks the Lord for his deliverance, and the Lord responds and raises his up, him up and restores his life from the pit. Uh, while I was fainting away, verse 7, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. We talked about verses 8 and 9 where Jonah sets himself up against uh, others who would uh, serve idols and worship idols, but he is recommitting himself to uh, worshiping the Lord and serving the Lord. In verse 10, we see the Lord's power on display. Once again, the Lord commands this giant fish and it spits Jonah up onto dry land. So the Lord is in control of this aspect of nature. It's, it's as if he is speaking just to this fish that he's here just for this reason, to swallow up Jonah, provide him a venue for uh, deliverance and escape, and then uh, at the Lord's command, uh, spit Jonah back up onto dry land. It's very interesting, I think, to see uh, something of a parallel between the Lord's power and command of the fish here in Jonah chapter 2 and Jesus, uh, the way that he uh, is uh, viewed several times with his power over the world, but in particular over fish. Uh, as you think through the Gospels, there are several times where uh, Jesus uh, interacts in some way, shape, or form with this aspect of creation. In Matthew chapter 14, and again in the next chapter, in chapter 15, we see Jesus feeding multitudes, a group of 5,000 or more. And then in the next chapter, a group of 4,000. And these are just the men of the group. And he's feeding these massive groups with just a small number of loaves and fish. And so he is using this part of the natural world 
to meet the needs that the humans have and accomplish his uh, purposes and desires in them. We also think about the times in the life of the Lord Jesus where he allowed for a miraculous catch of fish on two separate events, Luke chapter 5 and John 21, one at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, one at the end after his uh, resurrection. Uh, both times showing his authority over the natural world and allowing these massive amounts of fish to be caught. Matthew 17, Jesus is answering a question about who should I pay taxes to and, and so on and so forth. Uh, and the way that he ultimately will reconcile this is to tell Peter, go over to the lake, cast your line in, catch a fish, and when you catch that fish, open up its mouth and you will find a shekel in its mouth. Now, this is just an incredible thing for us to consider. Jesus, in his omniscience and sovereignty on display here, allows for this fish to be at this place in the right time, having previously at some point swallowed a shekel and allowing Peter to catch it so that he can take this shekel to prove a point. Now, I don't know if we can say without a shadow of a doubt that the gospel writers were intending us to think about a connection between Jesus' ministry and Jonah chapter 2 here. But it is interesting to see in Jonah 2, God has authority over the natural world, over this giant fish. And in the life of the Lord Jesus, authority over this aspect of creation is shown and exhibited as well. Uh, there may be some further connection there. Now, Jonah is at the end of Jonah chapter 2 in a position where he is now going to be obedient to the command of the Lord. But I want to talk for a minute about the question, has his heart changed as a result of these events? He was disobedient to God, did not want anything to do with going to Nineveh, uh, but as a result of God's pursuit of him, changes his mind. And as we get into chapter 3, we will see now the word of the Lord will come to Jonah once again, and he will obey this time and go to the city of Nineveh. Is this prayer in Jonah chapter 2 a prayer that signifies repentance? Or is it a prayer that signifies Jonah's desire for deliverance, but is devoid of much true heart change? What did Jonah learn, in other words, after the events of chapter 1? And what does Jonah still have yet to learn in his life. I think just on a cursory reading of the text, it would be very easy for us to say, uh, and many do, that after Jonah chapter 2, Jonah had repented, and now he was back on the right track. However, I don't think it's necessarily that simple. It's a little more complex than that. There isn't anything in the prayer that explicitly refers to a repentance on the part of the prophet. There is, as I have argued in verses 8 and 9, this reaffirmation or recommitment to the work of the Lord. 
But if you are trying to find a place where Jonah is explicitly uh, saying that he's sorry for his disobedience and repenting of that wrong action, I think you're going to be hard-pressed to find it in Jonah chapter 2. Instead, it, it seems as though Jonah in some ways is affirming some of his uh, action, particularly in saying those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness. I think that may be a subtle knock, not only on all the idol worshipers of the world, but maybe in particular, the people of Nineveh. So I'm not sure that Jonah has completely learned his lesson or even learned it at all at this point. I think what he has learned is, I can't run away from what the Lord wants me to do. So I'm going to go do it. I'm going to go to Nineveh and I'm going to do it. But I don't like it. I don't want to be doing this. And I think the Lord is going to work on that aspect of Jonah's heart coming up in the second half of the book. So in the first half of the book, maybe Jonah is uh, learning that he cannot flee the presence of the Lord. He cannot get away from what he has promised to do, his prophetic office. But he has not yet necessarily learned that all of the people, the sailors, the people of Nineveh, the, the Gentile world as a whole, are people that are very important to the heart of God. This is a lesson that Jonah will still encounter in the following pages of this text. Now, I want to spend some time uh, wrapping up this session and this chapter talking about the theology and our application of the theology of Jonah chapter 2. And I have four points here that I'd like to quickly go through. The first point is that sin has consequences even for the people of God. We've seen over and over again throughout our study of Jonah so far the severity of sin. And even for Jonah, God's prophet, God's person who is doing uh, largely what God wants him to do, except for this one task where he flees from the Lord, this sin is going to have some very real consequences. That is true for the believer in Christ today. Romans 8.1 tells us there is no condemnation now for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation on an ultimate scale for the believer in Christ Jesus today. But there are consequences for the way we live. For example, if I, in disobeying the Lord, running away from his desire for my life, fall down and break my arm, after I confess and, and uh, come back into a right relationship with the Lord, tell him I'm sorry for running away and put my will in line with his will once again, guess what? I still have a broken arm. So God does not necessarily always remove the consequences of our actions from our lives as we come into contact with sin in our lives. We will have to endure the consequences of that sin, that foolishness. Secondly, God hears our prayers. 
That's a, a wonderful aspect of Jonah chapter 2 to consider and to consider in light of our own lives. The Lord hears the prayers of his people and looks on them with love. Now, he desires for us to maintain a right relationship with him. But there is no place that we can go, there's no condition that we can get ourselves into where God cannot hear us and is not powerful to act on our behalf. I think that's demonstrated in the life of Jonah in Jonah chapter 2. He is perhaps at the lowest point in all of the created world in his mentality, the underworld, the lowest depths of the ocean, in the belly of a giant fish. And even there, when he looks to the Lord's temple, to the Lord's mountain, to the presence of the Lord, and asks him for help, the Lord delights to act on Jonah's behalf. Our sin may lead us away from God, but when we come back to him, he lovingly takes us back and forgives us. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. A wonderful truth of our faith that the Lord hears the prayers of his people, whatever situation we find ourselves in. The third point is that the Lord is God alone. No other gods are true gods at all in the sense that the Lord is God. He is the only one. He is unique. He is one of a kind. Nothing is on the same playing field as him. All other gods are vain idols or empty vanities. In a polytheistic society with a polytheistic worldview, the word of God is unapologetically monotheistic. The Word of God presents the Lord alone as the one true God. The final point is that, and this may be really the theme of the book of Jonah as a whole, salvation belongs to the Lord. He can grant it to whomever he wills. He can give it to the undeserving sailors. He can give it to undeserving Jonah. He can give it to undeserving Nineveh, and he can give it to undeserving you and undeserving me. Thank you for listening to the Emmaus Radio Ministry Podcast. This ministry is possible because of the generous contributions from our partners around the world. For more information about partnering with us, please visit emmaus.edu partner.